This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements, helping injured people and their families since 1975. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by Allstate, American General, The Hartford, John Hancock, Liberty Mutual, MetLife, Mutual of Omaha, New York Life, Pacific Life, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us today. Well, hormone replacement therapy, also known as HRT, was prescribed to women to treat the symptoms of menopause for years. Doctors prescribed drugs like Premarin, Prempro, and Provera. These drugs were also encouraged for other uses, including the prevention of Alzheimer's disease. But in 2002, a comprehensive women's health study was published, which connected HRT to increasing incidence of breast cancer. Studies uh, have confirmed that uh, over 200,000 women would not have suffered breast cancer, but for their use of a combination of this hormonal therapy. And uh, to this day, Wyeth, the manufacturer, claims that its hormone drugs do not cause breast cancer. So here we have the uh, typical controversy that makes for uh, a good show. And on Ringler Radio today, we're going to talk about hormone replacement therapy and the ongoing litigation uh, between Wyeth and the various plaintiffs involved in these cases. And to do that, our special guest is attorney Ted Meadows from the Beasley Allen Law Firm in Montgomery, Alabama. Ted practices in the firm's mass tort section, has been chosen to help direct litigation related to hormone replacement therapy as part of the plaintiff's steering committee. Well, Ted, welcome to Ringler Radio. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, Ted, like most of these pharmaceutical cases, the story unfolds over time. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, how does hormonal replacement therapy, uh, how was it be started and, and how was it introduced to, to combat these menopause symptoms uh, the, you know, many years ago? How did that start? Yeah, Larry, it's, uh, it's unlike a lot of uh, modern mass torts, um, this case stretches back over decades. And uh, uh, hormone therapy, uh, when I, in, in, for purposes of our conversation here, when I talk about hormone therapy, we'll talk about the drugs you mentioned earlier, that being Primarin, Primpro, and Provera. There, there are other hormonal therapies that are out there, but those are the uh, the cases that are the focus of the litigation. And um, the uh, Primarin is actually probably the the first hormonal therapy uh, that was used as as a mainstream drug, and it was introduced to the market in 1942, uh, and it was uh, intended to address uh, menopausal symptoms that women have uh, as women age, that their estrogen levels drop, and um, so the the purpose of the pill and and the the FDA approval was to address symptoms that women have when they reach that point of their, in their life. And those symptoms would include things like hot flashes mm. uh, and something called vaginal atrophy. It might be called vaginal dryness as well. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a, a natural phase that women go through as they get older. Um, Primarin, uh, actually, you might wonder where the name comes from. Mm. Uh, it comes from... Uh, it comes from its ingredients, and its ingredients are come from pregnant mare's urine. Uh, so mm. you, you get the primarin from that those three words, 
pregnant in mare's urine. Uh, many women to this day don't realize that, that the pill they're taking uh, is conjugated equine estrogen or pregnant mare's wow. urine. Um, so uh, that's when it started, 1942, and, and it uh, kind of had a lackluster beginning. And then in the mid-60s, there was a book published called Feminine Forever, Mm-hmm. Uh, by a doctor in, in uh, by the name of Wilson, who was funded uh, uh, by Wyeth, probably the first ghost-written uh, uh, book that that I know of. Uh, it touted the benefits of hormone therapy, such as Primarin. Yeah, um, interesting. And interesting. so uh, sales took off, and Wyeth enjoyed uh, uh, increasing sales for about 10 years. Um, Primarin... Uh, was uh, being prescribed uh, uh, to to millions of women across this country, and in the mid '70s, someone noticed that uh, during that time period there was an increasing endometrial cancer epidemic that was going on, um, and some smart epidemiologists uh, put two and two together and suddenly realized one day that uh, uh, with the increasing incidence of endometrial cancer in this country. Um, uh, there was also an increasing number of Primarin uh, prescriptions. Um, mm-hmm. And so they were able to link that up. Um, and the FDA ended up uh, forcing Wise to put a black box warning on uh, Primarin. Mm-hmm. Um, not to be deterred, uh, Wise determined that they could actually add an extra pill to the cocktail called Provera. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that would protect the lining of the endometrium. And uh, so that became the standard of care uh, in the late 70s and 80s. Women would take Primarin plus Provera uh, to address the symptoms. The Provera was only intended to protect them from the endometrial cancer. Um, And then uh, in the mid-90s, Wyeth decided to combine the two pills into one, um, and uh, they started selling a drug called Primpro, uh, which uh, contained the Primarin plus the Provera. Mm-hmm. Um, and they enjoyed great sales uh, of Primpro because many women were, you know, they, they liked the idea of one pill as opposed to two each day. And it was relieving, one, it was relieving their symptoms, too. I mean, it, it was, was relieving their symptoms. Mm-hmm. It does a very good job of doing that. Um, and uh, they... Uh, only had to pay one copay uh, because it was one pill, mm-hmm. and uh, so once again we saw increasing sales uh, all the way up until 2002, uh, when there was a study released uh, called the WHI um, that showed uh, that Primpro was uh, causing breast cancers among other problems. Is that when the litigation began? When did the litigation start? In 2002, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I distinctly remember in 2002 driving down the road, uh, heading into the office and hearing on the radio that uh, this massive government study called the Women's Health Initiative, which was run by the National Institutes of Health, had been halted. Um, it had been going on for a number of years. There was millions of dollars invested in it, and it was a big deal that they had to shut down this study. And the reason they had to shut it down is because they had... Uh, uh, they had preset uh, alarms to go off if certain uh, adverse events uh, reached a certain level, mm-hmm. and uh, that happened on, on July the 9th of 2002, or actually a few weeks before that. The study mm-hmm. was halted on July the 9th of 2002. 
uh, because they could no longer expose those women unknowingly to the risk of breast cancer and other problems. And so the litigation kicked off then. Um, many lawsuits were filed, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, lawyers uh, like myself looked at it at that time. At the time, I didn't feel good about being able to prove causation, but uh, as follow-up studies came out over the next two years, I became more comfortable with my ability to to prove that uh, that the drug causes cancer and that, and that I could prove it in an individual case. And uh, so I got involved in it in 2004. Well, that's – you know, it's interesting that uh... – during the course of these trials and this litigation that was going on, a lot of so-called red flags came out of that evidence that was presented at trial. And Wyeth evidently downplayed a lot of that cancer risk and uh, in that process. I also understand that uh, uh, there were quite a few studies that were written and articles that were uh, done that uh, it's been contended that Wyeth actually ghost were ghostwriters of those uh, articles uh, and they weren't really uh, independent doctors that were doing that. Tell us about that. Yeah, the um, two things there. I'm, I'm hearing uh, you ask about the red flags and yes. the ghostwriting. Um, the, uh, with respect to the red flags, um, that's uh, actually a, a term that we use at trial in, mm-hmm. in these cases. Um, and it's a term that's used by um, uh, regulatory experts to uh, to say, you know, when something comes up as a red flag, and that uh, it should it should alert the company to a problem. Um, we know that Wyeth uh, had red flags uh, regarding the risk of, of their drugs causing breast cancer. Uh, really, as early as the as the mid '60s, mm-hmm. uh, there was a study that showed that that, uh, that rats had an, uh, uh, were getting uh, mammary cancers uh, from taking the drug. But certainly by the mid-70s, when the endometrial cancer hit, uh, the endometrial cancer crisis hit, uh, it was causing hormone-positive endometrial cancers, Mm -hmm. Um, the same types of cancers that we see uh, in in the breast now from from Prempro. Um, And yet, why did no studies? Uh, They had internal documents. We now know that there are internal documents from 1976 where Wyeth Research were recognizing, quote, a valid concern as to whether or not the use of estrogens can lead to uh, breast cancer. Um, and they did nothing. They, uh, with with red flag after red flag after red flag, and literally there are dozens of them that we can uh, uh, show to a jury that, 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 uh, that happened over the course of decades, from the mid-'70s all the way up uh, to WHI in 2002, and Wyeth's response was either to ignore it, which is what they did early on, uh, but by the time it got to the, the late 80s and into the 90s, it had become such a controversial topic for them that they implemented uh, a, a strategy to counter it. Uh, one strategy was uh, uh, what they called the dismiss and distract strategy, so that if a study would come up suggesting there might be a risk of breast cancer from their drug, they would they would uh, dismiss it, the study, as being underpowered or, or not, not properly done. Right. And they would uh, attempt to publish some information that would distract the media to, to, uh, to look at some other issue that would take the attention off of that. They also had uh, what was called a breast cancer containment con- committee, an internal committee that uh, their sole purpose was to come up with ways to contain uh, 
any uh, bad publicity about Prempro and its uh, link to breast cancer. So they were active, not not just ignoring uh, the, the problem, but they were actively downplaying the risk of breast cancer and at the same time uh, touting uh, benefits that didn't exist, such as, a, as you, you mentioned earlier, Alzheimer's benefit or a heart benefit. Um, right. So that, th- those are the red flags that we're talking about. I, I, I can address the ghost writing as well. Uh, well, you know, before we get to that, let, let's let's try to put some balance here, just so we can uh, get get the other side. Wyeth maintains that its hormone drugs do not cause breast cancer. Uh, so, I guess we, on balance, we should talk about what type of evidence or findings. Uh, does Wyeth have to support the statement that it doesn't cause breast cancer in contravention to your, you know, your findings on, on, on the plaintiff side that, that it does? What, 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 do, what do you say about that? Well, they, uh, from what we see, um, what we see in the courtroom is that Wyeth will typically say, they, they will appeal to um, an inherent belief that we all have. And that is that no one knows what causes cancer. Uh, we all have that, uh, for some reason, that, that, that belief inside of us. Cancer is a big mystery to that's us. So, that sounds like what the tobacco folks were trying to do. That's exactly <laughs> what they did. And, uh, of course, we know mm-hmm. that uh, tobacco causes cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do know that there are some things out there that are carcinogenic. Mm-hmm. They, they cause cancer. Um, but that, that is, that's the defense that Wyeth will take in the courtroom is that, is that no one knows what causes cancer. And even if you can say that cer- certain things are carcinogenic, it's impossible to tell in an individual woman what caused her cancer. And that, that, therein lies the real battle in the courtroom. Uh, the whole idea that the hormone therapy doesn't cause cancer, uh, is really, um, we can overcome that one pretty easily from my from my side, mm-hmm. uh, because there's numerous studies out there that show that uh, the drug causes cancer, and indeed um, the current Primpro label says as much. Uh, it lists breast cancer as a side effect today. Uh, okay. It did not before the WHI. It does today. Okay. So uh, I think outside the courtroom, uh, why I would probably admit, and in fact they do on their label that it causes uh, breast cancer inside the courtroom. Uh, they use it as, as further battleground, uh, but their real focus is on the individual woman and, and, uh, right. and uh, you know, saying that uh, it's impossible to say that she, this particular woman, got breast cancer from their drug. From their drug. Well, in a Pennsylvania uh, appellate court uh, decision, which affirmed a, a $1.5 million compensatory and an $8.6 million punitive award against Wyeth on behalf of a woman diagnosed with hormone-positive breast cancer, the plaintiff had taken Wyeth's hormone pill, Prempro, for 18 months, uh, and that was a pretty substantial verdict. Tell us about that case. How, how, did, that, uh, how did the facts in that case lead to the conclusion of, uh, of those, those numbers being uh, awarded? Yeah, it, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about that case to me is that, is that the woman took for 18 months and actually took the pill every other day, so you might say that she took for nine months. Right. Uh, and that uh, short that would be what we call a short term use case, and, and it, it presents more challenges for for lawyers like me 
the shorter the term, the you know the less epidemiological evidence I have to say that the drug can actually cause breast cancer in mm-hmm. a woman on the short term. But but what they were able to show in 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 the Daniel case was that she was what we call estrogen deficient as she went into menopause. Mm-hmm. She uh, and how did they know that? She had uh, menopausal symptoms like I said earlier, hot flashes, vaginal dryness. This suggested she did not have sufficient hormones circulating in her body to fuel a hormone-positive breast cancer. How do we know it was hormone-positive? Well, when a woman's diagnosed with breast cancer, they do a biopsy. They'll stick a needle into the breast, pull out a piece of the tumor, and they'll run some tests on it. And they can tell whether or not that uh, tumor is uh, was fueled by or fed by hormones. So the question then becomes, from what source of hormones? Was it the woman's own personal endogenous hormones, or was it something else? And the fact that she was hormone deficient when she started taking the Primpro pill suggests that the only source of hormones that could feed that tumor was the pill that she was putting in her body, in this case, every other day. Um, so that's how they went about proving specific causation in that case, and indeed that's how we typically do it in most of the cases that have been to trial. So what's the track record on the HRT litigation against Wyeth? Are we seeing plaintiffs uh, being compensated, or, or is Wyeth winning some of these uh, trials? How is that going? Uh, Wyeth is winning some, but uh, there have been 25 plaintiffs who have gone to verdict to date. Uh, with with trials that started in September 2006 and most recently March of this year. Um, 25 plaintiffs have gone to verdict. Plaintiffs have won 15 times. Defendants, the defendant has won 10 times. So the track record here is actually pretty good for mass tort uh, case. Um, That's interesting. And, have, you, have, you, have you determined what the uh, elements were that caused the wins and the losses? Was it jurisdictional? Was it uh, the nature of the individual? Uh, was it the quality of the legal representation? What, what tends to have caused the, uh, the wins versus the losses? Have you I think it's that? a combination of all those things that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, um, they certainly uh, you know, have an impact on any case, not just, just right. hormone therapy cases. But uh, um, you know, it it it, uh, it it can be a mixture of those things. It can be things like length of usage can mm-hmm. be an issue, uh, and it, that depends on what jurisdiction you're in as to whether or not that's going to be a problem for you. Um, and uh, it can it can come down to case specific facts. You know, what sure. did uh, the the woman's prescriber think about uh, the risk of breast cancer in the lead up to him pres- prescribing it to the woman? Uh, what kind of testimony is there? Credibility um, of the experts. It's all the same. It's in every case. You're right. It, it, all those elements come into play, and uh, they're fascinating uh, plays in, in themselves. They're little dramas, and most people are used to watching dramas, uh, trial dramas on television. And I'm sure that that whole that's a whole other story about how how juries sit there and, and react to some of this evidence. Well, let me ask you, Ted. Do you think? With the nature of the size of this uh, litigation, do you think we have something like on the order of a Vioxx in in HRT, or where is this? How how big is this uh, pool? Well, I think that when we if we compare this to Vioxx, um, you know what my firm was very active in Vioxx. In fact, I think the last time I spoke to you in two thousand six was was about Vioxx. No question. uh, Vioxx, uh, we did not have a very good record in Vioxx. Plaintiffs did not win very often, certainly not the the win record that we have here in hormone therapy. 
the verdicts were not as big. In hormone therapy, when a plaintiff wins, uh, she typically gets eight figures. So it's going to be in excess of $10 million. Mm-hmm. The punitive awards are huge in these cases. I just I tried one in Philadelphia uh, with three plaintiffs back in December, and we got a, a $72.6 million compensatory award wow. before it even went to punitive damages. We settled the case shortly thereafter. But um, these cases uh, are big. And uh, even with a, a track record where we, uh, we we lose ten out of twenty five, I would say this is uh, you know this is prime litigation. It's it's uh, it's uh, you know the, the odds are in our favor that we're going to win and that we're going to win big. Uh, that's different from Vioxx. Another thing that's different from Vioxx is that Vioxx was a large, massive settlement where all claims were resolved at once. Right. Um, what we've seen in, in Primpro litigation to date is that uh, cases tend to not settle until the eve of trial or sometimes in the middle of trial. Uh, there have been some inventory-type settlements, um, but uh, I, I don't know that, they're, that, uh, that plaintiffs get the full value of their case, at least not to date. Uh, until they actually are on the, the courthouse steps and, right. and, and show why that they they mean business. Well, uh, that's true of a lot of those types of cases, and uh, that's the nature of the business you're in, I'm sure. Let's take a quick break right now and be back in a minute with Ted Meadows right here on Ringler Radio and talk more about HRT litigation. You can listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to RinglerAssociates.com or LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose from almost 200 topics. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, the leader in the structured settlements profession nationwide. Did you know that Ringler is involved in a third of all structured settlement cases in the country? Ringler Associates works with all the parties in a lawsuit settlement to find the best possible financial solution for the people involved. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Think you might like to have us create your own podcast on LegalTalkNetwork.com? Go to the website and send us an email. Or just give us a call at 781-551-9960. It's the best move you'll make in legal marketing. You never have enough friends or followers, right? Check out Legal Talk Network on Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn too. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. Glad you could join us. I'm joined here by attorney Ted Meadows from the Beasley Allen Law Firm from Montgomery, Alabama, and we're talking about hormone replacement therapy litigation. Hey, Ted, uh, you've been chosen to help direct HRT litigation as part of the Plaintiff Steering Committee, and uh, the multi-district Prempro products liability litigation involves thousands of cases against Wyeth. 
and is uh, currently consolidated under U.S. District Judge Billy Roy Wilson in uh, Arkansas. Talk about that and uh, the, 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 the size of all this and where you see uh, Wyeth coming down eventually with uh, the resolution of some of these cases. Yeah, Larry, the, uh, there are actually two, uh, I would say, two centers of the universe here. Uh, one is in Philadelphia. The, there are a number of state court cases mm-hmm. filed there, um, probably close to 1,000. But uh, the, the cases that were filed in federal courts around the country, have, as you say, have been centralized in, in an MDL in Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, there the Judge Wilson has been uh, entertaining discovery issues and even some trials over the last several years, um, and uh, he started uh, sending cases back to their home, uh, their home filings. Uh, I guess about two years ago, maybe three years ago. Uh, and so we're seeing some some trials now happen. Mm-hmm. He's also identified a number of cases uh, for what he calls uh, preliminary discovery. Um, and uh, so I think we're going to be seeing a lot of cases coming out of the MDL, um, hopefully in the coming months, um, going back to their home states. And uh, we're going to see more trials. Certainly we're anticipating that, and we've, we have a number of lawyers working on it and bringing more lawyers on to, to handle all the trials that will be coming up and out of the MDL. Well, you're going to be a busy man. That's for sure. Job security. <laughs> Ted, let me ask you about probably a, a, a much more serious issue than people give, give it thought, and that is the role of the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the role of the FDA in the process of uh, approving these pharmaceuticals and these drugs. We seem to be seeing drugs, uh, not just these drugs, but in in other instances where there's harm caused, or at least alleged harm caused, and yet the FDA has uh, approved a lot of these drugs. What's your opinion about the FDA's role here, and and how can we make that a little bit uh, better? Well, uh, you know... uh the FDA is it's like any other bureaucratic um, um, you know, arm of the government. Um, it it uh, it can be a good thing. It can be inefficient. Um, one problem with the FDA is you typically see a revolving door that uh, where industry uh, people go back and forth from working for the FDA back to to industry. So the you know industry has a in my opinion, a sympathetic ear in the FDA. And this can create a recipe for, for disaster um, because you um, the FDA uh, might not be other, as, otherwise as diligent, certainly as it, as it probably was many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, in making sure that drugs are adequately tested before they're put on the market. Um, my concern is that uh, there are preliminary tests that that will uh, that will approve a drug, or the FDA will use to approve a drug, but we don't see the true risk of a drug until it's exposed to a large population of people, and uh, that right now only happens after the drug goes on the market. Um, so, in the context of Wyeth and Primpro, uh, they they didn't do the adequate studies uh, to determine whether or not it could uh, cause any type of hormonal type uh, cancer before it was put on the market. You know, and, it's almost, it's almost Ted, as if uh, there's no drug that can be so safe that, uh, you know, there's no side effect potentially before the FDA approves it. It, it sounds like what you're saying is that the, the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and in its effort to, to sell the drug and to market the drug... Uh, 
might color some of the facts? How, how, how does the FDA approve some of these drugs that have these obvious uh, issues without the kind of long-term testing that that's required? Well, you know, there's only so much the FDA can do. Uh, I think a lot of people think that they they have labs and, and thousands of people that, that conduct the, the tests and the studies, but actually the way it works is they rely on studies that are submitted to them by the drug company. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the studies and testing is is expensive and time-consuming, and to, to put that on the FDA would be... Uh, uh, very expensive for the taxpayers. So they rely on the companies to, to submit proper data uh, and accurate data for them to evaluate. Uh, well, company, go ahead. I was going to say, that this brings us back to this ghostwriting concept that we talked about and touched on earlier. Do, do the, does the industry provide uh, documentation and reports to the FDA that ostensibly are supposed to be coming from independent uh, medical uh, sources and, and yet are ghostwritten by the by the industry that's itself, or is that not where that uh, takes place? Well, I think that ghostwriting can have an impact on it because, um, it, you know, it. what happens is, and this is probably the most insidious part of the way that, that Wyeth promoted its hormone therapy drugs, and um, they would uh, they would hire uh, a doctor to put his name on, a, on a, an article that Wyeth had written. Uh, they had a very well-oiled machine, and they could orchestrate these ghost-written articles to be published that would downplay the risk of breast cancer and uh, promote uh, off-label benefits, such as a heart benefit and Alzheimer's benefit, that didn't exist. And so these articles are still circulating out there now. Uh, it's like uh, taking a you know a, pillow, a feather pillow, cutting it open, and, and flopping it in the wind. You're never going to collect all those feathers again. Right. The same thing happens when you pu- when you publish a, an article like that. It's out there, and, it, and we see some of these articles even today that get cited to in uh, in other studies. Um, so it's hard to reel that stuff back in. Uh, so I suspect it, it you know it, it has polluted the medical literature out there and. Uh, uh, it probably has an impact on the way uh, scientists and regulators view um, the drugs. Well, that's a cautionary tale for everybody, and uh, I think all of our listeners are going to think uh, a little bit harder as to how this process takes place and uh, and give some thought before they start ingesting uh, a lot of these drugs. In your opinion, Ted, given the negative impact of HRT on the lives of thousands of women, even though they've obviously helped thousands of women, there's been a negative impact. Uh, how could this have been prevented? What, what, what do you sense could have been done that uh, would have avoided uh, the, some of the, uh, the troubling uh, results that some of these women had with the uh, HRT therapy? It's really pretty simple, Larry. Um, we know from the WHI that when the, when the study is done, when the, the the proper and adequate study is done, uh, then the results come out, and women and doctors change their perception of a drug. Uh, after WHI, the Primpro sales dropped off dramatically. Uh, women didn't want to take it because of the fear of, of breast cancer, and doctors didn't want to want to take the risk of of, of putting their patients uh, at the risk of breast cancer. So uh, if those studies would have been done back when, for instance, in 1976, when the internal memo came from a wise scientist saying, uh, you know, that there's some real concern that their drug can cause uh, breast cancer, then they would have known in the late 70s. Uh, 
that it can cause breast cancer. Um, if they would have, at any point in time in the 80s, rather than uh, over-promote their drug, uh, do a simple study uh, to see if it can cause breast cancer, then women would have known much earlier. Uh, and mm-hmm. you alluded to 200,000 breast cancers. Uh, 200,000 breast cancers could have been avoided. Um, if they would have done these studies earlier. Well, that's fascinating. Ted, one, one final question for you. For, for a lot of the women that are listening to this show eventually, uh, is there a hormone replacement therapy, let's say not the Pempro or, or not the Wyeth product, is there a therapy out there that you're aware of that, that's safe for women to take? You know, I'm no doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. I hesitate to give any advice in that arena, but I, I think that many doctors now um, will talk to women about na- uh, natural alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might even talk to women about uh, taking Primarin alone on a short-term basis mm-hmm. uh, and being monitored very closely. But uh, I would suggest that that a woman. Uh, you know, go and talk to her doctor, and if she has some concern that that his what he's saying is inconsistent with with what she might read on the internet or or hear from some other friends or even have heard on the show, that she get a second opinion mm-hmm. about it. Um, I think that would be the the best course uh, for them to take. That's, um, that's... We have a lot of information uh, just about the litigation and about hormone therapy in general on our, our firm website, well, com. That's what I was going to ask you. Uh, if someone wanted to get in touch with you to discuss or, or learn more about this, tell, tell us about your website and, and maybe a way for folks to reach you. Yeah, uh, BeasleyAllen.com uh, is where you can find me. I'm one of the attorneys uh, in that in that firm, mm-hmm. and uh, we have you can find my contact information on there, and you can also find uh, information on there about the hormone therapy story and, and the litigation in general. Well, Ted, that's terrific. Uh, thank you very much for all the information you gave us today. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, I just want to remind our listeners that. Uh, all of the Ringler radio shows can be heard on on uh, ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com. You can reach any Ringler associate also on ringlerassociate.com, and the website has recently been uh, been redone, and it's really quite snazzy. I, I recommend you go there. And uh, in the meantime, uh, Ted, I want to thank you again for uh, joining us today. Thank you. And for our folks out there who have been listening, go out and have a great day. Thanks. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio, celebrating its seventh year on Legal Talk Network. With over a million listeners, Ringler Associates, the first name in structured settlements. Visit ringlerassociates.com today. Today.